Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. On, on behalf of the audience, Craig, condolences to you and your family. Your father passed recently, and, and you Thank brought you. up your dad in, in your latest Florida Phoenix column and his work as a, a land surveyor in, in the panhandle and, and you sort of growing up and, and and watching him. But a story told to you by your mother, not until the funeral that that kind of put his uh, mindset with a lot of the work you do and write about into a new perspective. Yeah. I, you know, she, this was after the funeral and she was telling me about this thing that happened. And I said, wait, what? You're kidding. Dad, <laughs> Dad didn't want to do a didn't want to do a, a land survey that would basically lay out a new subdivision in the middle of these wetlands in a place called Florida Town, and uh, which I point out in the column is not where all the Florida men live. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's an area on Escambia Bay up in Santa Rosa County, and uh, lots of lots of marshes there at the edge of the bay. And this developer, who I call Bombastic Bob, in the column wanted to build a subdivision in the middle of all these all these salt marshes and dad said you don't want to do that you don't want to do that and the guy kept pushing him and so finally wanted a price and dad finally gave him a price for a survey that was so outlandish he knew the guy would turn him down and sure enough you know the the guy went off and found another surveyor built the subdivision and then hurricane ivan came along in 2004 one of the one of the four hurricanes that hit florida in about 6 weeks and just totally swamped what used to be a swamp out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I talked to someone from Santa Rosa County who said, yeah, that's actually a really bad place to live because they constantly get storm surges every single time there's a hurricane that comes through and the storm surge ends up swamping the whole the whole development. What, what year would that have been when your, your, your dad was in those negotiations with that developer? Mid 90s, I guess. And so it was before before I did any reporting on on wetlands. I think I was still on on covering criminal courts then. But we're, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, the the better part of of 30 years ago. And and even then and even 50 years prior to that, people have known about the tenuous nature of developing along the Florida coastline, along Florida (laughs) marshes, along Florida wetlands. And it, it seems like only now. Well, I, I shouldn't say that, but, but the, the chickens are finally coming home to roost statewide. And, and yeah. the, the fallout of this massive, near century long model of unwise, to say the very least, development, we, we, we seem to finally be uh, forced to reckon with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the one of my early one of my recent columns before this one was about New Smyrna Beach. Mm-hmm. They got hit pretty hard by Hurricane Ian and lots of flooding. And so they said, you know, I think we need to have a development moratorium until we can figure this out and, and try and make people safe from now on, which to me, that just seems like basic common sense, but it just, it's, but it's, it's, it's very uncommon. Yeah, it's I mean, uncommon. <laughs> in Florida to, to essentially put a halt on development until, you know, you can say, look, we, we got to get a better idea of, uh, flooding and floodplains and you know yeah. bedrock and soil samples and all because what what ends up happening and what we're seeing is it's it's just you know beating your head against the wall a storm comes you rebuild another storm comes it's wiped out you rebuild mm-hmm. another storm comes it's wiped out it's rebuilt insurance premiums up and up and up and up burden on the taxpayer more and more and more and more then we rebuild build back yeah. better build back stronger i mean it, it is a centuries long loop that uh, 
I, I should have been stopped 50 years ago when, when you look at, you know, water tables and, and flooding potential and where the coast is and where hurricanes come and say, we need to find someplace else to put these houses. This doesn't make any sense because whether it's tomorrow or in six months or six years, these things are going to be leveled by water. And and at that time, it was by hurricanes and storms, yeah. not so much by climate change, but now, now it's both. Yeah. Yeah. Cl- climate change, you know, makes things worse. The higher the sea level rises, the bigger the storm surge is going to be. FloridaPhoenix.com. You can read that column about uh, Craig and his dad. A great photo there of a, of a young Craig Pittman, <laughs> uh, lean and mean, uh, right next to his uh, dad. That's a <laughs> wonderful photo there. FloridaPhoenix.com. There's a link to that in the show notes. Talking about hurricanes, talking about storm damage. That reminds us of our Friends at Windstorm Products, windstormproducts.com. Of course, we are outside of hurricane season uh, right now here in January in Florida, but it's coming as surely as anything else. And now is the best time to be thinking about and then secure your home from hurricane damage with the Windstorm products uh, website and services and the hurricane hardware. And it's all the the bolts and screws and nuts and uh, drill bits and and different things that you need to uh, make sure your blinds and shutters and patio furniture isn't flying all over the neighborhood the next time there's a big storm. Check out windstormproducts.com. And they've even got uh, customer support up there in the right-hand corner. There's a contact us button where you can get in touch with them and say, hey, here's here's kind of my situation. Here's what I'm worried about, obviously, where I live and what what the history of damage has been. They will set you up with all of the, uh, not only the the tools and the hardware and the stuff, but the know-how as well. Windstormproducts.com. And that takes us to our guest this week, Jim Clark. Jim Clark is now a third time welcome to florida guest he joined us for way back in episode 20 we were talking about presidents in florida episode 104 was about florida's literary history he joined us on that one and this week we're talking about um a figure who played a, a prominent role in florida's 20th century history who's not as as well known and well remembered today as probably he should be and that's claude pepper yeah kind of claude pepper who uh he was a Florida senator, then he became a Florida House member, and to the extent he is remembered, remembered today, he's remembered as a major advocate of, of uh, rights for the elderly, uh, a, a major advocate of trying to help the elderly in Florida. Mm-hmm. His constituents in South Florida, obviously, large uh, elderly population there, and he was elderly himself when he was uh, when he was pushing these measures. So yeah. it he plus there he's the subject of a very fascinating false story but it's a it's one of my favorite florida political stories of all time so claude pepper was born in 1900 he served for almost 30 years in the house of representatives after a a run in the u.s senate on the cover of time magazine a a couple of times moved to florida after world war one jim clark's going to tell us all about claude pepper Jim, thanks so much for rejoining us Uh, i think you're our first three-time guest so uh, we should get you a we should get you like a special troll doll or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> How did you first get drawn into into writing about Claude Pepper? I mean, he's certainly a fascinating character, but he's he's not one most modern Floridians are familiar with. Yeah, uh, I was working on my master's degree at Stetson University, and uh, the former president of Stetson had once run against Claude Pepper in 1944. Mm-hmm. And the school was basically uh, 
interested in somebody writing a little about him. And so uh, I wrote a, a journal article and uh, uh, got my master's degree. And that was about it. That's how I got into Claude Pepper. And the more you get into Claude Pepper, the more fascinating his story is. Yeah, he's, he was not from Florida originally, right? He was from Alabama, I think. He was from Alabama and uh, and grew up there just dirt poor. Just one sad story after another. He, he went to uh, one school and then quit and ended up uh, at uh, a school called Howard, which is now, uh, it has changed its name. It's now Stanford. Um, but uh, anyway, he just was so poor. To pay for college, he had to shovel coal in the college furnace room. Wow. Uh, and, you know, this is a guy, in some levels, you really feel sorry for. Everything bad that could happen to someone happened to this guy. Um, he was physically unattractive. Um, he... Uh, you know, didn't have any money uh, and just struggled all of his life. How did he wind up in Florida? Uh, like a lot of people, in fact, like thousands of people, <laughs> came here in the late 20s uh, to get in on the land boom. Mm -hmm. He was a lawyer who had actually taught at the University of Arkansas. He comes here to Taylor County, which is, as you know, right up in the Big Bend, right where the panhandle starts. Right. And uh, he was going to be the lawyer for some developers. He got here and the land boom crashed in the late 20s. And he was suddenly out of a job. He had no prospects. He had moved here and and really had nothing. And uh, so he thought about, uh, you know, leaving, but instead decided to run for the state house. Wow. So so, I mean, he's a new arrival. Did he win? Well, he won in a kind of a strange election where uh, one of those things where a, a certain family had kind of run the county for generations and there was no candidate. Uh, the other people running were divided over a uh, issue, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, cattle dipping. <laughs> I, actually am I actually am familiar with that. <laughs> Are you really? Yes. <laughs> you and I may be the only cattle dipping experts in Florida. All right. Enlighten the rest of us. <laughs> you want to take this one, Craig? It involved uh, deer ticks, didn't it? And, yes. And uh, yes, deer, deer ticks were a spreading menace to the cattle. And so uh, a lot of ranchers built dipping vats around the state to dip their cattle in this arsenic solution. Ooh. That would kill off the the deer ticks. Meanwhile, they were kill. They were basically slaughtering all the deer all around Florida, trying to get rid of them because they thought that would get rid of the deer ticks. And uh, it wound up hurting the population of Florida panthers, who, of course, they like deer like I like cookies and cream ice cream. Basically, <laughs> 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 there are a lot of leftover vats around Florida that are basically, you know, uh, toxic waste sites uh, yeah. left behind by these by this dipping operation. And and literally, they would pick up, they'd use a, a machine to pick up the cow in the air and dip it in these uh, vats. And a lot of these small cattle uh, ranchers didn't have the money to build vats and things. So the state got involved. And then it's strange. It's almost like <clears throat> the uh, COVID issue of today, 
should the state have the power to order you to dip your cows? <laughs> and so in 1928... At least the cows weren't wearing a mask. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> In 1928, believe it or not, this was a huge election issue. And there were two other candidates in the race. One of them said yes, and one of them said no. Pepper didn't say anything. <laughs> and, but it was kind of a fluke. Uh, the cattle uh, issue died, and Pepper was defeated for a second term. And that's when he moved to Tallahassee. And opened up a small law practice. Well, he would go on to serve in both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House. And your book, Red Pepper and Gorgeous George, talks about a, a famous election, uh, which he also lost, that you connect to, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, important transitions uh, politically and socially in 20th century America. You know, people talk about uh, the the Red Scare, if you will, after World War II. They talk about McCarthyism. But this really begins with uh, the 1950 primary in Florida. George Smathers, uh, a congressman from South Florida, has, is taking on Pepper. And he was reluctant. He had once been a campaign worker for Pepper uh, early in his career and admired Pepper and saw him Pepper going off the rails and warned him, said, Claude, you better stop doing this stuff. And Pepper said, oh, I don't have to worry about re-election. Going off the rails, and what, what do you mean specifically? Well, he had tried to appeal to two audiences. He had tried to appeal to a national audience by portraying himself as a liberal. Uh, and he would go to New York and he would speak to extremely pro-communist groups like the Furriers Union. And he thought he could then come back to Florida and make his old, you know, stump speeches and nobody would know. But and he was a, he was in the U.S. He was in the U.S. Senate at this point. Right. He had been right. elected. Speaking of flukes, he had been elected as a result of a fluke um, in the 1930s. Both of Florida's senators died within uh, a couple of months. Wow. Hey, fingers crossed. <laughs> and and uh, so when the first one died, the two leading Democrats got into that race against one another. Then when the second one died, Pepper got in and there was really no opposition. The leaders were in the, in the first race. Wow. So he won in a special election, then was reelected. Uh, became a champion for um, Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, this is an amazing thing, I think. Claude Pepper was on the cover of Time magazine twice, in 1936 and 1986. Wow. 50 years apart, you know. Um, Why why in 36? Because of his backing of the the New Deal and FDR? Yes. Yes, he was seen as... uh, Franklin Roosevelt's kind of champion in the Senate, and he uh, voted for everything that uh, the New Deal represented, even when it hurt Pepper. Uh, There were several things he voted for that ended up hurting him, but he never challenged Roosevelt uh, and was, uh, you know, his number one supporter. So he's got this election, uh, 1950, with George Smathers, and that's where I cut you off. Continue. Smathers 
raises these actual issues of him speaking to all these communist front groups in New York and around the country. Clearly, this was uh, something a Southern senator in 1950 should not have been doing if they wanted to to stay in office. Uh, As it happened, the Florida primary that year uh, was early. It was in May. And so when Smathers won, candidates all over the country uh, said, wow, he's got a blueprint. And they adopted his uh, methods and won. Uh, In North Carolina, the incumbent senator had won the first primary primary, and the number two finisher had even thought of dropping out and then saw what happened in Florida and mounted a Smathers-like campaign and defeated the incumbent. Richard Nixon, who was a great friend of George Smathers, saw what happened in Florida. In Florida, uh, Claude Pepper was branded Red Pepper because of these alleged uh, ties to left-wing groups. And if you'll recall, in California, Nixon uh, branded his opponent, Helen Douglas, uh, the the pink lady. Uh, So it was almost identical. After that, Barry Goldwater used the same thing against an incumbent senator. So the... Uh, even though Smathers was a Democrat, he gave the Republicans a real blueprint, and they were extremely successful. They retook control of the Senate in 1950. Wow. Uh, now, was, now, Smathers was a Democrat, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, yeah. Today, he'd be a Republican, uh, ah. but he was a uh, middle to right wing uh, Democrat back at the time. Now, how did he get the name Gorgeous George? I have to ask. <laughs> you know, as as sad as Pepper's story is, Smathers led this charmed life. It is hard to believe everything he did turned to gold. His father had come to Florida before World War I uh, for his health. Uh, but before leaving New Jersey, he had made best friends with a guy named Woodrow Wilson. And so he comes to Miami and sets up a law practice. It's funny, when I interviewed Smathers, I said, well, your your family was rich. And he said, uh, no, no, no. He had a small law firm and only had a couple of clients. And I said, no, no. He, you know, I argued. And he said, no, all he had was the trolley company and, and the family, the Davis family. And I was kind of embarrassed. I thought, well, gosh, maybe my research was wrong. And when I got home, I found out the trolley company is now called Florida Power and Light. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard of them. And the Davis brothers were the founders of Winn-Dixie. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> so he grows up in this wealthy family and then goes to the University of Florida, where he is, plays football. You know, even during the Depression, his family was wealthy. Um, the library know. there is the Smathers Library. That's why mm-hmm. that name is familiar to me, right? Yeah, well, yes. actually, Chad, it's funny uh, that even in death, these two are still fighting. Smathers has the library at the University of Florida, and Pepper has a library at FSU. So they have, <laughs> they have competing libraries. <laughs> and I'm sure some matriculation takes place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have to deal with that story. We have to deal with it. I think we have to. Yes, Can you tell the story and then... 
and then tell people basically that it didn't happen. But ha- do you know? Do you know how it got started? Because it's a famous. It's a famous po- politics story. That's the only yeah. One. Uh, the the idea was, and, and the joke turned on Pepper, but uh, and was attached to Smathers. But it may have been started by a Pepper aide who had uh, come down to Florida and went back to Washington and talked about how dumb Florida voters were. And he said, you know, I bet you could just use a whole whole bunch of words uh, like his sister was a thespian in wicked <laughs> New York. And they would attach negative views to that. And so this became kind of a running thing. And then people on the campaign, uh, Bill Lawrence of the New York Times, when he'd come down, it was kind of a, you know, one of these things we used to do years ago where you'd you'd add a line to a poem or a limerick, you know, you'd, <laughs> you'd come up with a different word. And surprisingly, uh, it gets picked up by Time magazine. And Time runs uh, this thing, which at the time was only a few lines. It's now grown to be a major speech. As people have added to it, you're welcome to to add to it. Then, because Smathers was not the darling of the media, he gets tagged with making the speech when he did not make the speech. In fact, no one made the speech. And for the rest of his life, he offered a reward to anyone who could prove that he made that speech. And no one, of course, ever claimed it. Right. And so he didn't actually accuse George Mather's uh, sister of being a thespian or accuse him of matriculating at a college or. <laughs> no, but it's a wonderful story. And it's one of those stories, Craig, that simply will not die. And, uh, you know, everyone will always believe that George Smathers gave that speech. So how did he how did he beat Pepper? Was it did Pepper ever figure out what he was doing wrong on that? No. Um Pepper saw himself as a national figure. He thought he was the heir to Franklin Roosevelt. And so he thought he should be president, didn't particularly like Truman. And uh, here Truman becomes the vice president and then the president, a job Claude thought he should have had. And so almost immediately, uh, Claude begins sniping at Truman. And he's a fellow Democrat. And just as he had praised Franklin Roosevelt, he is critical of uh, Truman. And this all comes to a head in 1948, when Truman is running for president. The convention is in Philadelphia. Uh, Pepper declares himself a candidate. They're there to nominate Truman. And literally at the last moment, he challenges Truman. And it turns out, you know, and people are, it's just a joke. And 24 hours later, he withdraws as his <laughs> shortest campaign on record. Wow. Total of but 24 Pe- hours. Pepper wasn't joking. He was completely serious. He was extremely serious. And wow. he thought, you know, he would go to these groups and they wanted his vote as a senator <laughs> for their projects. And he mistook that for supporting him personally. Uh, so, you know, some union would say, Oh, we're really behind you, Claude. Well, what they really meant was, (laughs) hey, we'd like your vote on the Wagner Act or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he has this 24-hour campaign. As you know, Truman was so far down in the polls at that point, no one gave him a chance. And Pepper proposes that since Truman is going to lose, 
that he go ahead and resign the presidency. Uh, mm. <laughs> and you can imagine, wow. yeah. You yeah, that imagine, went over well. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine Truman's reaction uh, to that. And so Truman became his enemy. As soon as that happened, all of a sudden, George Smathers, who is the, you know, one-term, Cong- two-term congressman from Florida, almost takes up residence in the White House. Uh-huh. He is there all the time. Uh, when Truman begins going down to Key West, as the Miami Herald noted, that uh, uh, he Truman spent time only with his family, except for George Smathers. Wow. And uh, wow. the line becomes anything George Smathers wants, he can have. So by 1949, Truman is encouraging Smathers to get into the race mm-hmm. to defeat his enemy, Pepper. Yeah. And, and he did. Again, yeah. And Pepper did this all, all to himself. And it's really kind of sad. You can watch step by step how he committed political suicide. Wow. So how did he how did he come back? How did he come come back and get elected to to the House? Uh, you know, Florida's population, as you know, was booming in the 1950s. We picked mm-hmm. up a couple of congressional seats. One was going to be in South Florida, and Pepper declares for um, Congress. He's going to run for Congress in a very crowded field. Uh, 1962. He's not particularly ahead. He's you know. He's just one of the candidates. Uh, people still remember uh, the 1950 election, but he writes a letter to uh, uh, John Kennedy, and recalling their days together in the House or in the in the Congress, Kennedy writes him back a very formal kind of polite letter and says, "You know, oh, thank you for your letter," and then says, uh, "I hope uh, I hope to see you in Washington." <laughs> and Pepper, Pepper uses that to say he has Kennedy's endorsement in the primary. <laughs> yes, because Kennedy said he wanted him in Washington. And in a very divided field, he wins the primary and then goes on to serve uh, what until his death in 1986. Wow. Wow. So yeah. so uh, so what what had he been doing between the time he'd, he'd been kicked out of the Senate and then? Got elected back into into the house. Had he just uh, been practicing law? Or? Yeah, very badly, uh, very poorly, I guess. As a senator, because of his positions, he had made so many enemies. You know, so many politicians hang out their law shingle, and all these big corporations come running. Uh, that did not happen with Claude. Uh, Claude had made so many enemies, and many of them uh, needlessly. You know, the his biggest enemy was Truman. A close second was Ed Ball, uh, oh, yeah. who ran the state, who had been the who was in charge of the old DuPont interests, and who was arguably the most powerful person in Florida. And in 1944, Pepper heard a story: uh, the Breakers in Palm Beach, the giant hotel, parts of it were being used for recuperating wounded soldiers. And there was a rumor that the hotel had told the wounded soldiers not to go out near the golf course because it depressed the golfers. <laughs> well, so Pepper, and he did this frequently without any checking. He went off and, and 
and uh, blasted Ed Ball, who said Ed Ball was behind this as owner of the Breakers, accusing Ed Ball of being unpatriotic. The problem was Ed Ball didn't own the Breakers. Yeah. <laughs> he had divested it. it he what, it owned point, a lot, but not that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the only thing in Florida he didn't own. Uh, he, he, had, he had owned it one time through the Florida East Coast Railroad, but got rid of all the hotels and just kept the, the railroad. And so here's Ball being accused in the middle of a war of, you know, being anti-wounded soldier. And so he just set out to make Claude Pepper his, uh, his crusade uh, during the 1950 election. He published a booklet, uh, eight by 10 booklet that was about 28, 32 pages called The Red Record of Claude Pepper wow. about all the things he had done in relation to uh, communists. And again, Pepper had brought this on himself. Uh, he had been right in 1939, in 1938. He would get up on the floor of the Senate and say, Hitler's a threat. We're going to end up in a war here. You've got to pay attention to this guy. Uh, and people not only didn't listen, they made fun of him. Uh, a group of mothers hung him in effigy in wow. front of the Capitol, uh, saying he was trying to get their sons into a war. And it turned out, of course, he was right. Mm -hmm. And after that, he thought, well, I must be right about everything. <laughs> and so after the war, he became this big, supporter of Russia, including saying how great Joe Stalin was. Mm -hmm. And he would give speeches about wonderful Joe Stalin. And I'm, I'm not even sure that would play well today. Um, no, but it pretty sure, sure wouldn't play well in 1950. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, you know, you just could see him making these unforced errors. Three episodes so, ago was all about Ed Ball for folks interested in, in learning more about Ed Ball and his influence in the state. So check out the, the archives from last month for that one. Go ahead, Craig. All right. So Claude Pepper's made this dramatic comeback by claiming an endorsement he didn't actually have. And he right. gets into the House. How, how do you explain his his incredible longevity there? And apparently he figured it out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, after that, um, he became... You know, when he returns, we're in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and all of a sudden he becomes the world's strongest anti-communist because he represents <laughs> a Miami district. So at least he did learn from uh, from his mistakes and now becomes uh, strongly anti-communist, strongly anti-Castro, and it was a safe democratic district. Several times it looked like he was in trouble, but he mounted. Uh, a comeback every time. Sylvan Meyer, who was the publisher of the Miami News, said, uh, you know, in the 70s, I think, you know, they keep throwing these guys at Claude, but he's going to be there for the rest of his life. And Sylvan was right. Hmm. So the first time he's on the cover of Time magazine is in 1936, supporting Roosevelt. The second time, 1986, largely for his work advocating on behalf of the elderly. Talk about how he became interested and in, in involved in, in this effort to uh, advocate on behalf of older people? Yeah. Once he's in the House, he wants the national publicity he had gained when he was in the Senate. And of course, it's a lot harder in the House. 
And so he began looking for issues and he uh, found criminal justice. He was on a committee involved with criminal justice, the Attica riots. Uh, Hmm. He uh, flew up to Attica after the riots and announced there would be hearings on Attica and and, uh, wanted to get involved. What would that have been? The early mid-70s, I guess, early 70s. Uh, And he was going to make that his cause. And Attica did not produce the publicity he thought it was going to produce. And he began looking for another issue. And he found it in Johnson's uh, new program, The Great Society. And uh, Johnson was ex- expanding Social Security. Johnson was, uh, you know, doing Medicare, Medicaid, all these things. And he latched on to that and got a committee created uh, just for this and used it and got the national prestige he had once had 50 years earlier. And and he became known as sort of a real advocate for the elderly, which dovetailed nicely with the, the his constituents at that it, point too, right? It does. It does. But, you know, his trick was, and he said this to somebody after he lost the state of uh, state house race in the 1920s, uh, he was on a train and he said this to a fellow politician who was asking why he got defeated. And he claimed it was over something to do with Herbert Hoover's wife, um, which is another story. But uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Herbert Hoover's wife had uh, entertained the wife of an African-American congressman at the White House in the late 1920s. And southern states all passed resolutions condemning this, and Pepper voted against it. And what he told his friend was that he, from then on, and this was true for 60 years, he was going to vote for every spending bill that came along. So, really? Yeah, and he did. At no point did he say, hey, this is inflationary or we don't need this. If it was to spend money, he was for it. And Why? so it was hard to criticize him in a district with lots of elderly people because he had voted for every possible bill. Sometimes he'd, <laughs> he was on the he'd be on kind of opposing sides. One bill would call for spending 100 million and another would call for spending 50 million. And he'd vote for both. Uh, <laughs> but it worked. Uh, he served until he died. How did people react to him? How did the how did the voters react? They loved him, uh, and you know what's not to love? Here was a guy who was uh, big on constituent service, and you know, in that district, lots of people had you know, hey, my social security check didn't come, you know, things like that. And he was very good about constituent service, and uh, he kept getting reelected. If he was still alive, he'd probably still be in there. <laughs> You mentioned the library at Florida State, the Claude Pepper Center. What is his relationship with FSU and how that came to be? Again, Claude Pepper was so so strange in many ways. From the time he was in elementary school, he figured he was going to be a big deal. And he started saving everything, every scrap of every school paper, every everything he had ever done, he saved. He uh, started 
you know, kind of looking for a library that would, you know, kind of honor him. And he didn't find many takers. And finally, FSU agreed to his terms, which was naming a center after him and, and you know, handling all of his papers and things like that. But uh, remember, he wasn't giving any money. He was just giving all his papers. Smathers was coming with the cash. He gave, I believe, $10 million to the University of Florida to get the naming rights to the main libraries. What is, looking back, what is Claude Pepper's legacy today? What, what do people remember about him? Or what, how, how did he touch lives? You know, think? it's really funny. When, when he died in 86, and then FSU was going to have the library, I thought he would be one of these figures that remain in the public mind. Uh, he got a postage stamp after his death, and yet he is almost totally forgotten. I'll bet you even 90% of the students at FSU who walk by his library every day don't know who he was. Mm -hmm. He won a National Medal of Freedom, you know, along with the the postage stamp. And this is someone who, you know, Time Magazine twice. I mean, that, you know, dropped the mic. You know, this is someone who was incredibly, (laughs) incredibly prominent. You're absolutely right. And And I'd never heard of him before we started this, you know, this podcast and I started researching it. Yeah. uh, and, And so... Uh, I was surprised that uh, he uh, uh, did not leave uh, much of a legacy. You know, when you think of Medicare and Medicaid and expansion of Social Security, you think of Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. You don't think of of Claude Pepper. So uh, I'm, I'm very surprised at this. But without his work to do those things, LBJ wouldn't have been as successful, right? I, I think so. Um, you know, he controlled the House during that time. Uh, this was before Vietnam kind of uh, ruined his legacy. Pepper played a pivotal role in bringing it to the attention of the nation that, that hey, there were these problems and these people needed help uh, with health care and other things. So I think he became this voice uh, for people who had had very little voice. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if the fact that he was himself a sort of an elderly elder statesman, so to speak, made a difference too. to basically give people, you know, it's not a young person making these arguments on behalf of his elderly constituents. It's someone who would really clearly fit in with that same demographic. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that he was able to relate to them. And again, he got the attention, the public adulation that he had had in the 1940s and became a national figure again. So obviously, he kind of knew what he was uh, was doing this time around. Uh, at least no one associates him with Joe Stalin today. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully. Red Pepper and Gorgeous George is the name of the book. Jim Clark, the author, his third appearance on the podcast. Jim, thanks once again for sharing your insight with us and our audience. Thank this you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I, I keep coming back in a lot of instances with this episode to Stetson Kennedy, who started off one of our, our first episodes in, in 2022. <laughs> yeah. This just enormously prominent figure who has really, you know, not I don't think purposefully been erased from the, the pages of Florida history, but has just kind of vanished Fall, over fallen into obscurity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, well, our, our our society is so fast paced now. We've got so much stuff flying right at us you know it's mm-hmm. like they say drinking from a, from a fire hose it's like it's like that and so 
you don't know about the stuff that happened in the past. Some really fascinating stories. The story of of Smathers and and Pepper and the famous speech that never happened is one of my favorite political stories of all time. Where did where did you come <laughs> across that story? Because that's not not oh. something I've, I'm I'm familiar with. Oh gosh, uh, where was it? Um, uh, I think I was when I was in college in Alabama. I was reading I was reading a book about George Wallace. I think mm-hmm. and ran across some mention about you know uh, the accusations that Claude Pepper had a sister who was a thespian who matriculated and you know <laughs> all these all these. words that sounded kind of naughty but weren't actually and so you know and uh and i I got curious and went looking for the for the original story and of course then i found out oh this speech didn't actually happen it's just this joke that kind of got circulated and then somehow wound up in time magazine so another instance of uh, a great florida story that maybe doesn't quite live up to being factual (laughs) welcome to florida welcome to florida